0: Hey, welcome to what? I don't know. Welcome to what? What to welcome? Yeah, going back to the episode, Endless Pursuit of Jewels, this is closely related to that idea. And it might be the ultimate example of the Endless Pursuit of Jewels. And in particular, one certain jewel, one specific jewel. And that's truth it seems to be something that everybody everybody sees truth as something exclusive the the true if something is true it excludes something else and of course what it's excluding is something untrue something fake something unproven untruthful that's untruthful it's a lie although something can be untruthful but not be a full-blown lie, too. And I don't want to go too far into that, but let's just look at this idea of the truth, and it's something that everybody seems focused on, and it's, the, it's at the core of everybody's dispute. And I don't say disputes, I say dispute singular, because it does just seem to be the dispute behind everything, is this differing perspective, and that's really how you have to look at the truth. Where, you know, I've been reading a lot of testimony from mafia cases late at night. If you can, if you just, if you ever want to fantasize about what I get up to in my spare time, lately it's just been staying up till ungodly hours of the morning reading courtroom testimony. And and funny enough, you know, I did that episode about. Fred from, uh, God, I can't even think of his name. Fred Phelps from Westboro Baptist Church answering questions in a documentary by saying "asked and answered." Well, funny enough, like right after that, I got on this courtroom testimony kick, and sure enough, I forgot that that was a legal phrase. I forgot that "asked and answered" is what what they say when a witness has already asked a question and a prosecutor or defense attorney asks a variation of it again, the the judge will say, asked and answered. And Fred Phelps is, of course, a lawyer. So I hate to unravel the the mysticism of asked and answered, but I realized, oh, yeah, he's he's referring to court. And it was a little, I don't want to call it a synchronicity, but there was something a little coincidental where, like, the next night after I did that episode... I'm going through courtroom testimony, and sure enough, I see asked and answered. <laughs> you know, it, it was it was nice. It was a nice little um, nice little thing. But uh, in reading that testimony, point being, there was a mob boss. He was the first big New York mob boss to turn government witness, named Joe Messino. and he said something where he was like, you know, there's your side. My side, and then the truth. And that's something we've heard a million times without really thinking about it. But it, it really does capture that what it really does capture, you know, how we should approach the truth. Where I think there's a tendency to go, okay, there's your side and my side, and that's it. And where those meet in the middle, where those two ideas compromise or blend together. That's the truth. But I don't think that's correct. I think you have to see it as my side, your side, and then the truth. And you see it as, these are two perspectives looking at, let's just call it, for the sake of, for the hell of it, let's call the truth an object that two people are looking at. And the reality is it's being looked at 360 degrees from every angle, up, and down, left, right. But let's just say two people are looking at the same object, and they're going to be describing it. But that's gonna their description of that object is gonna de, is gonna depend on the lighting, whether each side of that object looks the same. Because I mean the object might not be a mirror image, you know, it might not be one of those annoying symmetrical images that I described in a recent episode. It might be completely different on one side, you know, it might be like a mutant. Action figure, or something, where like, or Two Face, or you know, whatever else, it might. It, the truth very well might look that way from one side versus another. The colors might not be the same, you know. And of course, this is getting ridiculous because it's like, what? Well, what? What is this object? What is this truth object with its colors and shapes? But it's just the best way to to kind of visualize it. But those two different people on each side, they're going to be describing something different, and there might be commonality to it. You know, there might be commonality, but, they, you know, they might be seeing different things. They might be, even just simply what they're paying attention to might be different. It might be identical on each side, but what they are noticing in the limited amount of time. It's like, like imagine telling somebody, okay, you have two seconds to look at this thing. You know, you're not going to be able to scan it up and down. You're not going to be able to look it up and down like a, like a fine woman. You know, you're going to look at something and then you're going to remember that. You see it sometimes with, I mean, to go back to, you know, witness testimony, you'll see it when crimes take place. And when a crime takes place, it's not like the Matrix, slow down, everything's in slow motion, and you can take a look at everything. You know, it's not like that. It's like you have this brief moment where some sort of action happened, and you saw somebody, or you saw somebody do something, And you might not have seen the whole situation play out, but you see just one thing, and witness testimony is often mistaken, or there are often errors in witness testimony. It doesn't describe what actually happened, because they only had a brief glimpse from a certain angle, and then the human mind is, of course, I don't want to say corrupted, because I don't think any of this is deliberate. I don't think that sometimes witnesses lie, you know, and and I think that is worth getting into where, you know, people will be looking at an object from different angles for a brief glimpse of time. They will get a brief glimpse of the truth, but they just might not be looking in the same place. They might not be seeing it from the same angle as someone else. And so these two people are going to think that they are at odds. They're going to think that what they are seeing is completely different, and it's important. That difference is so important and what one person thinks is the truth excludes this other person's version and that's not to say that some people can't be more wrong than others i suppose you know especially when it comes to events you know are you know just or just visually describing something you know if you know we all know what blue means some people are colorblind but they they still have their own sense for what that means uh, and if uh you know, it's it something I learned early on. A friend of mine, actually, it was really insightful. It was a really insightful criticism. It was in high school, and one of my good friends, he was telling a story, and I, I interrupted to say something. Like, "Like it was a story. We had, we had been there together. We had both been part of this story. And he kind of called me out, and he was like, you know, like, when I tell a story, you know, I might say, like, the guy was in a green shirt, and you feel the need to say, well, it was a blue shirt. And I realized that was very true. You know, I could feel the urge to get defensive and but I was like, holy shit, he's right. I do there's something about me, and it's not that I need everything to be, you know, perfect. It's not that I it's not even that, but it was just this thing where I guess I my memory is very visual and I love like the, the story. And I think I don't think that I lose the forest, you know. By the for the trees, or whatever that saying is um i don't I don't think that I lose sight of the bigger picture, but part of my visual memory is that details are important, and it was always sort of weird to me. An example of this would be sometimes a movie would come out and they would have an action figure line, and sometimes the action figures would be wearing a different color. I don't know why color is such a focus in this, but I guess it's an easy association uh and I remember like sometimes the action figure like wouldn't look like the what the character wore in the movie and it kind of it was kind of cool in a way that it was different but it was also a little bit weird. And another variation of that is sometimes I don't know if this happens as much anymore but when I was growing up sometimes you'd read a book and they would have a depiction of the characters on the cover but when you read the book the characters don't actually look like the characters look on the cover or movies will do that. I think a great example is The Outsiders where the characters, Some of the characters got different hair color in the book opposed to the movie, like Matt Dillon's character. In the book, I think he's got super, like almost toehead, white, blonde hair. And then in the movie, of course, he's Matt Dillon, and it doesn't matter. The character doesn't depend on his hair color. But it's one of those weird little things where it's like, well you feel like there's something, it's just it's just kind of an odd feeling. But anyway, to go back, like, you know, my friend kind of called me out where he was like, you know, when I'm telling a story, you have this tendency to be like, to point out some minor detail, and even if you're right, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter in the story. But I guess for me, it's like it matters to me because if I was part of a memory, my visual memory, it's it's just it's sort of like an you know, important component to that memory in some way and is it really important though and i realized it wasn't and just my natural tendency is to try to get things right according to my memory but maybe my memory is wrong too maybe it wasn't a blue shirt and maybe it was a green shirt but it was one of those moments where it was just this it, it was it was so speaking of truth like this what when this friend said this to me it was so truthful especially for a kid like a teenage boy you know you know, we're, we're hanging out smoking weed, getting into trouble, you know, just minor trouble. But still, it's like we didn't typically have, you know, mental interventions with each other. And that's kind of what it was like, whoa, like that that just that little comment really put something into perspective. He told me something and I knew what he was saying about my tendency to do that was true. So that was true. That's the only truth. Uh <laughs> is that I I have this need to correct details in people's stories. No, but it's one of those things, though, where there's this tendency, too, though, to, you know, I mean, and, and, you know, in that case, too, it's like we're I'm remembering a blue shirt. My friend's remembering a green shirt. And that was the example he used. But even thinking about that now, the truth could have been that that the guy was in a turquoise shirt. He could have been in some sort of, you know, one of those combo colors, one of those hybrid colors between blue and green where you don't really know what to call it. You know, turquoise, teal. His shirt was turquoise. Turquoise. Could have been that, you know. So we were both right in a sense. It just depends on whether you consider turquoise or teal more green or more blue. It could have been something as simple as that. But you can see where, you know, you could be looking at this object, and, you know, as much as I hate to think of the truth as an object, it's just, imagine you're looking at it, and you see a rounded, something curved on it. You're looking at something, and you can't really see the whole of it, but you see something curved on it, and you go, oh, this thing is round. It must be a circle. It must be circular. At the very least, it has something circular on it. And, you know, somebody over there is like, well, you know you can't really tell maybe it just it's kind of rounded in one place i don't know that it's a circle and you know you're like oh i know it's a circle you know from where i'm standing it sure looks circular and the worst thing that can happen in that situation is for the other person to say i don't think it's a circle i think it's an oval cuz it's that closeness that sometimes the the deepest gaps the the deepest chasms can often be you know the deepest kaf, kaf, kafem, the deepest chasm can o- often sep you know th- what that separates might be closer together than anything else like the two cliffs that are on each side of that chasm might be so close together that the depth of the chasm distracts you from how similar the two sides of the cliff are So someone might say, well, I think it's a circular object because I see this. And someone else might say, well, I think it's actually an oval. And we all know those two things are different. We all know a circle is different than an oval. Or maybe it's one of those things where a circle is technically like a subcategory of an oval. I don't even know, and it's not even worth entertaining. But just the point being, one person says it's kind of a more of an egg shape. The other person says it's a perfect circle. And those two people can go to war over that, and people often do. And it's, it, you know, I, I know I'm bringing up the Bhagavad Gita a lot, and, you know, I think that story, one thing that's really special about that story is the two sides that are going to be going to war are cousins of each other. And that's why the whole topic of which side to choose, or which side is truly good or evil that's why it's a dilemma for arjuna or i believe that's the pronunciation you know i don't i don't know how to pronounce anything um but you know that's why he needs krishna's guidance because it's it's again it's like there's this deep chasm because these two sides are going to war but they are so close together they are cousins they were at one point the same thing you know with, they had a common ancestor and they were all one and yet they're going to war. And we see that a lot, you know, it's not just in this, you know, mystical scripture. It's also in you know, just look at the history of England. Look at, you know, it's often family members having disputes over the throne because only they you have to have certain blood or a relation to gain uh you know, to to gain the crown. So of course, the people who are going to be fighting over it are the candidates who are relatives, you know, that's just how it's always works. So you often see people who are related going to war. You often see people who are close developing the deepest chasm between them. It's sort of like I've talked about uh, maybe in the Endless Pursuit of Jewels episode where sometimes like, you know, you might have very similar taste with somebody. You might be, you know, to somebody, you might like to somebody who doesn't really know who doesn't really have insight into your weird niche interests, if they were to look at you and this other person, you'd be like, you're the same person, and you should be friends. But you put those two people together, and it's like, well, my my favorite Slayer album is, you know, Rain and Blood. And they're like, well, my favorite is, you know, Hell Awaits. And while they should just be like, hey, we're both Slayer fans, especially, you know, early Slayer, they might very well be like, they might very well be at odds with each other over that and it's a silly example and most people have fun with that where it's like well i think you know this 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 has the better whatever you know people have their reasons they have their reasons for their preferences but it is something like that can create the deepest chasm being close just like how those two cliffs were once one those two sides you know of the chasm those cliff sides they were once the same thing and someone could have, before that chasm appeared, somebody could have walked over it and never thought, oh, this is different than that. When I took this step from here to there, the ground completely changed. It didn't, but yet when this chasm appears, it sure feels like it. Now there's this this distinction, this separation. And it's kind of what happens, you know, when somebody looks at something and, hey, that's a circle. Well, that's an oval. You're essentially cousins, you might as well be cousins. You both see a rounded object. But yet people do split hairs over that. People do basically go to war over the smallest discrepancy, over the smallest difference in 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 what they consider the truth to be. And you have to step outside of that and say, well, at the very least, you both see something round, or curved at the very least. You know, Your mind might have done the rest of the math, or maybe one of you saw something, the other didn't. I don't know. But you're both you have to remind yourself that you are both looking at an object and neither of you might see the whole thing. So uh you know you can see just where closeness though, like in the same way that the Bhagavad Gita, it's a war between cousins. Circles and the ovals. Huge difference. But meanwhile, you know, somebody else might see the base of it and be like, it's a square. It's a it's a rectangle. And I mean and and that person, that you know, what's funny, though, is I don't feel that, I don't feel that, you know, a lot of conflicts, especially over something like what's true and what's not, I, I don't often feel like it really is a battle between the circles and the squares. I I usually I feel like people who have perspectives that are that different don't really come into contact with each other as much. I, I think that conflict tends to be people who are in closer proximity, both, you know, actual, you know, physical proximity or mental proximity, people who interact with each other, but also, you know, their idea is, is in closer proximity to that other person's idea, but the small difference just creates that chasm, and so, very rarely do I do I look at two people who are in competition or in conflict and say, "Oh, that person sees a circle, and that person sees sees, sees a square." Um, and it's the same thing with politics, where, like, when I look at Democrats and Republicans in the in the United States, I see cousins, and and you, you know that that can be very literal. I mean, you think about within your own family. I mean, that seems to be a constant topic, is family members who disagree, especially about politics. And uh, what better example is there of people who are coming from the same place, but seeing something different? You know, what better example is there of someone who is very close to you, you know, genetically, blood, you, you share blood, but yet this thing that you are looking at this truth that you are both observing. You see slightly different things. And, yeah, there are some people where you meet them and and they're just like, I see a square. And they tell you that right off the bat. They want you to know right off the bat because they want to know whether you agree or not. Because you have to remember that about people who are provocative. Sometimes they just want to start shit, but they're also testing you. They're also seeing, they're kind of baiting you in a way. You know, because a lot of people will say to me, people who don't know me terribly well, you know, just as part of casual conversation, they'll say, "Well, yeah, yeah what? Well, uh, the the president is uh, the idiot. Well, what about the idiot we got in the White House?" You know, they'll they'll try to kind of bait you, and either they're trying to you know relate over you know this hatred of Donald Trump. Or they're maybe trying to test you. I think they're kind of doing all of the above. But what they're basically doing is like... You know, how about that uh, that oval? The oval office. There we go. I didn't even plan that. How about that oval? How about that square in the oval office? And they want you to either say, Yeah, that freaking square. Or they want you to say, Well, I, I actually think he's a circle... And then you can either drop it or argue from there. And so for someone like me, who doesn't want to weigh in one way or another, who doesn't want that real estate tycoon to take up real estate in my brain, and I, I'm, it's not an original thought, I've heard someone else say that, but I thought that was a really great way of putting it. Love him or hate him, I feel like that's a great way of putting it. And I, I, for me, it's really, you know, neither. I don't need to get into my opinion on Donald Trump here. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where people will bait you and people do that often with what they believe the truth to be. And it's, it's the same thing for Republicans. I mean, they used to do it about Obama constantly. You know, I had a friend's dad I hadn't seen in many years. I ran into him when Obama got elected and it was right after the first election. And he was like, so what do you think about the guy they just put in the white house? You know, it was like that kind of thing. He's like, I think they'll put anybody in. And, uh, it was, again, bait. It was, it was. You can tell when someone's baiting you to try to see what your perspective is, to see what truth you see. And I, I try not to fall into that, because it's usually pretty obvious when people are just trying to provoke that. And uh, And I think the worst thing you can do is agree with somebody. Not the worst thing, but just, you know, something that I avoid doing is when someone does that, there's a tendency, especially if you're not invested in it, or not invested in, in in the same way you're not invested in it in the same way that they are. There's a tendency to go along with them because it's easier than trying to explain that you don't really have an emotional investment in it. It's a lot easier just to kind of go oh yeah he's he's kind of an asshole or or oh yeah like i I don't know how he got in the spot. I don't know how I don't know how he got elected. You know it's easy to kind of go along with it just to be just to harmonize. But in doing that, you feel this dissonance in yourself. Anytime you go along with something that you don't necessarily disagree with, but don't agree with either, there's this dissonance that creeps in. So I just try not to take the bait one way or another. But you can see where it's, it's so often, you know, the squares fighting the rectangles and the circles fighting the ovals. There's this tendency to kind of, you know, you see it in the way that groups split off. You can see it in the way that factions develop. Uh, if you look at organized religion, that's, you know, one of the best examples where you look at the way Islam has just fractured over the centuries into these different groups, and still is. You know, even, e- you'd think Al-Qaeda, and, and you know, I might not be getting things 100% here, but I'm not claiming to know the truth about the Middle East and Al-Qaeda. But still, you can see where, didn't they even split off, where it's like Al-Qaeda, you'd think that they would all be just totally unified. Be like, we all, we all, we participate in the same religion, we all care a lot about it, we all read the same scripture, but yet they fracture off, and they start fighting each other. And, uh, you know, it happens, of course, with Christianity, with all religion, even Buddhism. I mean, read about the stories in, in South Korea, where you had Zen Buddhist monks hiring thugs to throw Molotov cocktails into other monasteries, like to actually throw Molotov cocktails into these rival monasteries. And of course, you know, it's because things get politicized, because it's not actually about that spiritual experience. It's about some, there's there's something else going on. But you can see where things become factional, they become fractured, and it really is that circle and oval at each other's throats. Because one, one thinks it's a little bit elongated. You know, so... Uh, and then someone can turn around and be like, well, you know, it, somebody can always... There's always an opportunity to break off. And not just to break off and live by example, but say... I want everybody to know I'm not that thing that I broke off from. I quit. The example I always use is I quit drinking, so I hate alcohol. I quit this, so I hate that. Now, I'm no longer, you know, I'm no longer a socialist, so I have to be a fascist. Or I, I you know, it, it's not about just living by. It's not about just being like hey, I'm going to live a lifestyle that supports the truth I believe and that is that the truth is circular. I'm going to live a lifestyle that supports that and reinforces that and I'm going to show, not, not even deliberately, but I'm just going to you know try to live in such a way that that is communicated in what I do. And the best way to communicate that is by feeling good and doing well. And having some feeling like I'm in balance with the world, and that's living by example. It's saying, "I see this circle and I live this way in response to the fact that it's a circle." Um, and, and you know, that's a much better argument than it's a circle because it's not an oval." defining it by what it's not. I'm good because I'm not evil. Well, maybe you should just focus on being good. And not be connected like a ball and chain to evil. Resist not evil. Resist not oval. Hey, oval, oval sounds kind of like evil. Oval and evil. It's the name of my children's book, Oval and Evil. It's about how ovals are it's about how ovals are evil. You can go there with it. You can go there with it. You can be like it kind of sounds like this other thing, so it must be that. But, uh, you know, it's just there's this tendency to to want to define yourself, to want to define things by what they are not, and that's part of what creates it's part of what deepens that chasm at the very least is the is the, you know, the two sides of the cliff are defined by the by the separation between them rather than for what they are. And what they are is the same thing, it turns out. <laughs> it turns out they, they're the same earth. They're the same ground. A line was just drawn. And uh, but yeah, that, that you know not seeing it as, and I think this gets into the idea of the middle path. it gets into the idea of moderation, it gets into compromise. And it's why I'm not comfortable with the idea of compromise, and it's why I don't see the middle path or the middle way as a compromise or as necessarily as some sort of balance or as some form of moderation, even though those are all great ideas. I think moderation is a great idea. There's this tendency to see, especially when it comes to politics or ideas, to see moderation as, oh, it's playing the fence or it's trying to compromise these two different sides, Oh, you're trying to find something that's halfway between an oval and a circle, whatever that is. It's probably still kind of an oval, but it's one of those things. Sometimes you'll see a circle, and at first glance you think it's a perfect circle. You think it's the band, a perfect circle. No, but you'll see a circle, and um, you know, fuck, fuck that band for uh, stealing that phrase. You know, because you can't say it now without thinking. You can't say a perfect circle. You have to almost come up with something else. A circle that's not uh, an oval. Because the band A Perfect Circle stole that phrase, and I can't say it without thinking about them, even though I don't even know what they sound like, even though I've never knowingly heard them in my life, they've stolen that phrase from me. But what you could say is that it's not an oval. A perfect circle is not an oval, and a perfect oval is not a circle. That's no. That's going to be the name of my band, a perfect oval. A perfect, a perfect oval. A perfect evil. <laughs> but uh, you know, there's this tendency, like when when it's, I don't even remember what I was talking about. Um, to well, yeah, to get compromise moderation. Why I don't really like those in any sense that they're used you know, both in terms of, like, moderating your intake of something that might not be good for you, or being a political moderate. Why I don't like that is that it presumes that the truth that you are seeing is somehow dependent on these two other perspectives. And I think all of those perspectives are what makes the truth. Or all of those perspectives are seeing the truth in some way, But what I don't like about the idea of moderation is it, I think we have a tendency to think of it as a combination of two of the perspectives rather than just your own perspective in a different place. You know, your view isn't dependent on the fact that this person sees it from the far left and this person sees it from the far right and therefore you're in the center. Like some child of both sides. I don't see it that way at all. I don't think mo- being a moderate, I don't think the middle path in any way that that's used, whether it's used in the Buddhist sense or simply the way you live your life, you know, and which is what the Buddhist sense is. It's simply finding that middle way rather than getting attracted to these extremes. And uh, with that, though, there's this tendency to think that you are defined by those extremes. What makes you a moderate, what makes you where you are, is somehow dependent on what those people are seeing when you are seeing something, you know, your own way. You are seeing it from your own place that doesn't depend on those extremes, if that makes any sense. And your observation, too, is just one perspective as well. And if you think of the truth as something that you can see from every potential angle and every potential angle is going to show you something slightly different, well, then you have to look at everybody. It's not just your side, my side, and the truth. It's everybody's, and how do you do that? Isn't that what we are trying to do as a species constantly, trying to take as many perspectives into account? We do, but then we try to shut them down. We try to brand them. Pseudoscience. That That can't possibly matter. That can't possibly have any basis in reality if we can't measure it using a system that is continually changing and is continually recognizing its own mistakes, you know, because that's one of the the most beautiful things of science is that it, it operates from a place of original sin, really, where there's this sort of true science operates from this place that we're never going to truly understand this and we're going to try and in doing that we are going to continually reevaluate our ideas you know science becomes outdated it's an algorithm you know I was talking about that recently but it science is an algorithm and it it does change it does respond to itself and the perspective changes and i, I think a lot about psychology too because it's studying something that you can't see, but that we all experience through people's behavior, through what they say. And with psychology, though, you know, it's it's so modern. You know, you think about these Swiss fellas who completely revolo- revolutionized, who created, in many ways, these ideas. And, of course, they were creating these ideas based on something they were seeing, what they thought was the truth. But you can see where even they had problems. You think about Freud and and Carl Jung and how close they were and how the first time they met, they talked. I think there was something like they, they sat in a room and talked for like 14 hours uninterrupted. They had so much to talk about. It was like two soulmates finding each other. Oh, you're looking at the brain in this way. You're looking at human behavior, psychology. We are literally... Creating the foundation of modern psychology. So of course we're going to have to talk for fourteen hours. But then what happens? They had a minor disagreement over something. One of them saw a circle, the other saw an oval, and they didn't speak for a long time. I don't know the exact story because it's. I don't really get into the drama of that shit. I don't get into the drama of like oh um, yes Freud and uh, and Carl Jung had a falling out and you know it's just like the the human drama of it. And focusing on that kind of takes away from each of their ideas to me. To me. You know, some people might be interested in the story. What's the story? Because if you were to make a movie, which people probably have, I don't know. Uh, I've never seen a movie about Freud and, and Jung. But, you know, if someone, if someone were to make a movie about them, they would probably highlight this melodrama because, oh, they had a falling out. You know, something like that. It would probably be a British movie. Uh, you know i <laughs> should I even say it yeah you know, i don't i don't have a huge problem with England, you know, just to let you in on a little secret i don't have a huge problem with it it's fun though, one of the reasons why I give England such a hard time is because it's like the it's the only country that we've fought with on our own homeland. the only country that we've gone to war with on our own land and it was actually to make it our land. You know, were the English. And I mean, of course, you can get into what happened with the Native Americans in those wars where we were the people or the English were in that case or the French or whoever it was. I mean, the Native Americans have had to fight everybody. Uh, but just as as an American, as a European American, you know, I, I think it's funny that we fought this bloody battle with the English. And yet we're totally cool with them now. We have all these Anglophiles here, and yeah, we have plenty of people who who aren't into England, but we have a general just uh, acceptance and appreciation for England, even though they were the Redcoats, even though we fought with them. It's just funny to me how quickly we were able to forgive them, and vice versa, I suppose. So it's funny to me to kind of harp on that. And there's a little bit of truth to it, because I don't love British things. I don't—I get British humor, And that's the worst thing. If you if you know somebody who loves British humor and you watch their British humor shows with them and you don't laugh, they think that you don't get it. They'll be like, oh, it's it's very dry. You know, it's like because they take on a British accent, too. Um, But uh, (laughs) maybe they do. But it's funny, though, because like there's this tendency where if you don't laugh at, at you know, British humor, so to speak, as if that's all one thing, but there is a tone to it. We all know what British humor refers to. Or or maybe people disagree. Maybe that's a different truth that we can argue over. Um, but it's just one of those things where people have this tendency to think, like, if you watch, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know an example. Downton Abbey. Is that a comedy? Is Downton Abbey funny? Absolutely fabulous. Uh, but if you watch that with somebody, it's like, Oh, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get British humor. It's like I get it. It's just not for me. So I'm not terribly into British culture. I do like plenty of British things, but it's just here's my big disclaimer, you know. And we one of the one, we have a very lo- loyal, long time listener of this show, John. And I found out he was in England. I'm just I'm just making sure you know I don't hate you. You're one of the good ones. That's a, that'd be a great way to think of it. You're one of the good ones. You're one of the good Englishmen. You're one of the good ones. Oh, you're one of the good men. That's always fun. I've, I've had, uh, I've been told by a lesbian feminist before that I'm one of the good ones, meaning men. I appreciated it. You know, I appreciated it, but at the same time, there's something inherently condescending about it. Um, oh, you're one of the good, Oval. Believers, you're one of the you're one of the few people who believes in ovals. That is good. You're one of the few good Englishmen. That's a that's the name of a movie, right? A few good Englishmen, a few good men. Uh, any anyway, though, just it's it's funny to me though that like we forgave England real quickly, and I guess it's because we came from them. Many people did at least. And so it's funny to me to act like, to still have this sort of hostile nationalism against England or something, I don't know. They're just waiting. It's a long game. England's going to eventually come back and try to take America. Take it back. But that idea of the truth, people have this tendency to think that it is this jewel. It is this jewel, and part of that is... When people are trying to spread the truth, it's very rarely about actually giving people insight into their perspective. It's not like, well, here's how I see things, and I'm going to explain it to you so maybe you can understand that. And maybe you will see the truth similarly, or you'll see this quality that the truth has. Because the truth is so large, and we have this idea that... If I don't speak the truth, it won't be there. We think the truth is this massive, important thing, but yet we think if we don't speak it exactly as we see it, that the truth goes away. And yeah, there are certain situations you should be mindful of. You know, there are certain situations where you should tell the truth. Like, if if you see a mugger steal an old lady's purse, and you're the only witness, and that person gets arrested... You shouldn't say, "Well, the truth is there no matter what. So you don't need me to tell you that he's the guy." You know, you don't you're not going to say that cuz they need you. There's sometimes where you speaking the truth is needed. You know where it's it's you're not going to say, "Oh, you know, I'm not going to the truth is just there. This guy with a a podcast he who who thinks that it's his job to keep the the fires Of the British American War alive in 2020, he told me that the truth is just there whether you acknowledge it or not. So clearly, I don't need to tell you that I saw that guy steal the purse. You know, this isn't a way of bypassing right action. You know, just because the truth is always there doesn't mean that you need to buy, that that you should bypass doing the right thing. And that kind of gets into the Bhagavad Gita again, where it's all about what is the right thing. These two different sides are cousins, and what is the right thing in that situation? And so that's really the dilemma. But that's where your intuition comes in, and as long as you're not just out of your mind... You know, your intuition will hopefully guide you in the right way, and I think intuition generally does. I think intuition generally tells you what you need to know, what you need to do, generally. But uh, with, with that, though, it's like, yeah, there are situations where you need to speak the truth. You need to tell people. Sometimes you even need to snitch, if that means telling the truth, but not always. And just to get back to that idea though, we have this idea, and it's like, let's get out of that, let's get out of situations where you telling the truth is the right thing, and just telling the truth is is just this, it has to do more with the bigger picture, like what you think is right and wrong in a general sense, not right and wrong in the sense that it's going to help that old lady. Help that old lady by identifying her mugger. Uh, Because we have this tendency to see the truth and we think, That's the truth, and it's my jewel, and I need to comment on it. But we don't comment on it because we honestly think that information is going to be helpful. We comment on it because it becomes another extension of our ego. I found the jewel. I found the ultimate jewel. Truth. And I'm going to keep it close to my heart, but I'm going to tell you all about it. And you see that a lot with conspiracy theorists, because an important part of the whole conspiracy theorist industry, which it is, I mean, they sell people a lot of stuff, is, I know the truth and you don't wake up. I'm seeing that a lot right now, from people that I like, even. You know, it's from people I like, but there's this, you know, this dive into conspiracy, and there are people who are already open and interested in that stuff, and, you know, I'll take any conspiracy theory at face value, but you can see where a certain person gets sucked into that industry, and it's all of those things. Where it's, it, That's what's so funny to me, too, is that you'd think if somebody really, truly believed in a conspiracy theory, they would focus on them one at a time. And, of course, there's a tendency to see them all as connected. There's a tendency to you know put the thumbtacks in the wall and connect the, the string to as many things as you can. And maybe they are. I'm not telling anybody they're wrong. But there's a tendency to like want to focus on all of them. Rather than just focusing at the ta- on the task at hand, rather than being like, you know, hey, there's, here's this one conspiracy theory that I think is very important, and I'm going to go all in on this, because that's much more effective. Like, if you meet somebody and they have a bunch of what you would consider rational views, but then they bring up one issue that is a little bit controversial, let's call it, you know, a conspiracy theory. And they're all in on that, but they don't bring any other conspiracy theories into it. They're not, they're not just—they don't see that as just the door opened up and now I can just spout off about all these things. They just focus on that one thing in a very practi- practical and reasonable way. That is much more effective, but w- what we tend to see from conspiracy theorists is throwing everything, bringing up everything. And that's never an effective argument, but I don't think they really want to convince anybody. I don't think they really want the entire world to go, you know what, you're right, it was an inside job. Or that they did that to distract us from this so that they could do that. I don't think it's actually about teaching people or bringing anybody over to their side. I think it's very much about, this is my jewel. And this makes me feel special. And what makes a person feel special more than having exclusive access to the truth? Exclusive access to the truth and, the, and a truth that excludes other interpretations. You know, you can s- so you can see where behind conspiracy theory, it's just, there's a lot of poor strategy at the very least. A lot of poor strategy. And you know, my conspiracy theory, my personal conspiracy theory, the one, the hill that I'm going to die on, you know, speaking of the idea of picking one at a time, not saying you have to stay with that one forever, but just picking one thing at a time. And my conspiracy theory is that we are constantly trying to convince each other, and I'm not talking about governments, I'm talking about everybody. We are constantly trying to convince each other that we know what we are doing. And how do we know what we're doing? Because we see the truth. But we're constantly trying to convince each other that that was planned. You think about when someone slips, there's the joke, like you slip on a banana and you tell people, I meant to do that. Governments do that too. Sometimes just a, a chaotic situation erupts, the government is purely reactive, purely responsive, and if it goes their way, they go, I meant to do that. Oh, we meant to do that. You know, there's this tendency to, to try to revise, it's, that's revisionism. You know, that's true, pure revisionism, true, true revisionism. And, uh, you know, revisionism itself is based on this idea that they didn't get it right the first time, and now I have the truth. And often there's an agenda, sure. But there's this tendency to even revise our own actions where, you know, if I were to throw a basketball across the gymnasium and it were to, and I got nothing but net, just a pure swish, and I said, meant to do that, meant to do that, everyone else in the gym might think, well, I don't want to play against that guy. That, that guy might be real. That guy's really good. You know, that guy's really good. Maybe that's what I want people to think. Maybe I want people to think I'm the best damn basketball player in the world. And because I got that random swish, even though I suck, you know, I'm, I'm an absolutely terrible basketball player. Some coworkers and I played years ago. We set up a game and played a few times. And I mean, granted, I was like going to the playing hungover and all sorts of stuff, but I couldn't believe how bad I was. Um, but, uh, you know, because I imagined, like, one... like, And there was one time, too, like, at, at an office, like, we had a bowling work party where we went bowling, and, like, I happened to do really well this one time. And I wouldn't say I'm a terrible bowler. I wouldn't say I'm a bad bowler. But I'm very hit-and-miss. And, miss. and uh, this this one work party, though, I, I just... I did really well. I'm not saying I was getting nothing but strikes, but I got a, a, quite a few. And everyone thought I was this, like a, like a pool shark f- with regards to bowling. And then I kind of thought that too. I was like, maybe I am a good bowler. You know, I started to believe that. They, they only saw this one glimpse. That was their glimpse, and they thought that was the truth. Eric's a good bowler. And uh, then I kind of started to think, maybe I am. Maybe I am just a naturally good bowler, and then the next time I went bowling, I was terrible. You know, it's, I'm not a great bowler. I don't even know if I'm a good bowler, but it was just funny how you see somebody do something once, and especially if they, if they afterward, they act like they always do that, or they meant to do that. I mean, it's sort of a, a variation of the act like you've been there idea. Because when you act like you've been there, people think that it's just something that you can do at will. They think it's just a part of your thing. He can do that. He can do that. And, uh, you know, they for that moment, that was true. And is that not true? You know, you, you look at that, too. This is all about propping myself up. This is all about talking about the one night that I had just an incredible night bowling, and my, my ego is hinged on it. Um, but, you know, thinking about that, if people saw you bowl really well one night, was that not true in that moment? And I don't want to get into some like, deep philosophical like what-is-truth argument, even though that's all this episode is. But it is a thing where if they saw you that one night, you were really good that night. So in, in essence, you you were a good bowler. You are a good bowler as far as they're concerned, but it's just it's not something you can consistently do. Sometimes you get it right. In the same way. Sometimes you get it right. Sometimes you don't. Um, but, you know, so you can even... But that idea of, you know... So my conspiracy theory is that things are far more chaotic. People are reacting and responding for, ma- f- for mar, far more than they would like to let on. Because by letting on that they are just responding and reacting to chaos, they are letting you know that they don't know what they're doing. And that, that's the big lesson you learn with parents and teachers and everybody is that, oh, even if they've read the book, taken the class, even if they've, they've prepared for this in some way, they are just responding and reacting. And the nice thing about discipline, the nice thing about structure, is it makes responding and reacting that much easier. It makes it more natural. It gives you some kind of foundation, but it doesn't change the fact that that you are still responding and reacting. You know, just because you built a house, you built this structure and you live a certain way and you take care of that house, it doesn't completely protect you from the elements. You know, there could be a bad storm. There could be an earthquake. And you have to respond and react to that. And, uh, you know, if your house doesn't fall down, well, it was well built. And so I think that's the way you have to look at just discipline and structure in your life is to be like, well, I'm going to try to build this as well as I can so that it doesn't fall down. But it doesn't change the fact that, you know, when the hurricane warning comes, you have to respond and react and you aren't in control. And I feel like that's life as a whole. I feel like life as a whole is as much as we plan, as much as we strategize, as well-built as our structures might be, as well-honed as our discipline might be, we are still going to be reacting and responding. And so the conspiracy is that we're not just improving most of the time. The conspiracy is this idea that we as individuals, we as governments, on the macro and the micro level... We're trying to convince everybody we know what we're doing, that we are professionals. And the situation the world is going through right now shines a very bright spotlight on that. Shines a very bright spotlight saying, oh, hey, we don't necessarily know what we're doing, and we can respond and react in a certain way, which may or may not be the best way but we are responding and reacting to a chaotic situation. And to pretend that we know what we're doing does a disservice to everybody, but at the same time, people are scared and they want to think that somebody knows what they're doing. They want to believe that everybody knows what they're doing. And of course, some people know, you know, in their own field of interest, you know, you listen to people who are in the medical field. They have an idea, they are learning, and they are sharing that knowledge with you, but don't pretend that they know everything either is they weren't completely prepared for this. You know, even if they had all of the resources, even if the government had given them all of the testing kits, all of the respirators, all of this or that, it doesn't somehow it, it doesn't somehow prepare a hospital for anything and everything. And I think this situation shows you that how so much of life is a reaction, but we want, you know, we get so much security out of thinking that somebody knows what they are doing. We get security from thinking that we know what we're doing but especially from other people because deep down we know we don't know deep down we have imposter syndrome every time we try to be professional every time we try to play a role we're going to have a little bit of imposter syndrome and of course the more you do it the more you get comfortable with it the more it does become the more you do kind of know what you're doing but it still can't prepare you for everything you're still never going to know the, the exact truth And I do believe that the truth includes everybody's perspective in some way. Even the liars. And that's hard to wrap your brain around. If the truth can even include the liars and the lies, the larger truth, you know, are the macro level truth, even includes the lies and the liars. Because they exist too, you know, in the same way that someone's looking at the object of truth from one side and the other person's looking from the other side, and they might be very angry at each other for seeing it differently. And they might be maybe not even angry, but just adamant that they are seeing the truth. They might be very adamant. But, you know, someone else might be looking at it, and they might deliberately lie. They might just say, Oh, it's red and it's spiky. Oh, the truth, it's red and it's spiky. They might very well say that just to fuck with everybody, like the children's game of telephone I talked about, where it's like, you know, as, you know, someone says, let's just say a truth. They give a, they give a piece of information, it goes around the circle, and it's going to get a little distorted naturally because we don't all recite what we hear perfectly. So it's going to change a little bit just based on that. But there is that person who throws a wrench in it, and they deliberately change it. They deliberately change the message in the game of telephone so that it's completely wrong. And there's people who do that. And and I think those people might be necessary in some way. I think those people might be serving a natural function. Because we're not getting rid of them. And when you don't get rid of something, when you can't get rid of something seemingly you have to say, maybe that is serving some kind of natural function. Maybe liars are serving some kind of natural function or purpose. If nothing else, by lying, they def- they give us at least a little more definition of what the truth is, because we can look at certain people and be like, oh, that person is very wrong. And even acknowledging the fact that we all have different perspectives... You know, that person is getting it really wrong, maybe deliberately. And that gives us more security in our own idea of what the truth is. It's that sort of black and white thing, dark and light, where, you know, the light is defined by the contrast it has with the darkness. You know, some sort of relative truth is defined by the fact that something can also be a lie. It's not that lies don't exist, but the larger truth, and this is the thing that's really hard to wrap your brain around, and I don't even know if I've done it. And, it. and I'm just coming from my own perspective. But the way I see it is that even the lies and the liars are part of the truth, and they help us understand it. I think they actually do us a great service in many cases. And we shouldn't hinge ourselves on trying to call out the liars. He's a liar. He's got it wrong. You know, because we want to do that. We want to define our own truth beyond wanting to clutch at our own truth and shake our finger and say, I know the truth and you don't and you should listen to me. But the reality is that comes from such a place of oppositional defiance to where if everybody else finally accepted the truth, you might very well decide that you believe in another truth because so much of who you are is defined by the fact that I'm an individual and I'm unique. And I see things my own way. you know. So even if everybody eventually came over to you, you might decide that, oh, that truth is no longer, even though I was harping on it for years, that truth is no longer for me because I've got to have my own thing. I've got to have my own jewel. And I don't know who I am if I'm not telling people to, I know the truth. You know, I don't know who I am if I can't scold people and lecture people. But, uh, you know, understanding that you can say, okay, when when I catch somebody in a lie, they are helping give some illumination. They are illuminating the truth in some even a small way. They're giving it a little more definition because, you know, it's not that when someone lies, you can say, well, I know it's not that. So that means that, you know, I can it, it, it just it just basically means I can rule that out. I can rule, if, if, you know, I'm looking at it and I'm just like, I just don't think, nobody else is saying this thing is red and spiky. Everybody has kind of a similar view of it. They all kind of say it's somewhere between a circle and an oval. They all say it's kind of round. They all say it's somewhere, maybe it's blue, maybe it's green, maybe it's turquoise. So I think I can rule out the fact that it's red and spiky. Unless that person's just seeing it from a completely different perspective. I think I can rule that out, but that that gives some security to my idea of what I think it is. So that's helpful in a way, but you shouldn't define yourself by a war on the people who think it's red and spiky. You know, you shouldn't define your own truth based on that, but recognize that it does help you find your own truth. And they're not necessarily wrong. And that's a hard one, you know. Is you know, is somebody who is lying necessarily wrong? I don't know. I don't know how to get into that. Uh, but you can look at you can look at um, this jewel and and recognize that everybody is trying to clutch the jewel in some way. But the problem is, they think that they think that it's exclusive. They think that the truth is exclusive when it's the most inclusive thing I can imagine. And they also think that they need to highlight it. They need to present it at all times. And you can see where some people, they get into this mindset where they think, I just tell it like it is. I just tell it like it is. Someone asks me something, I tell them. And people can become very cruel that way. Sometimes people can attack each other with the truth. Often they do. I mean, that's kind of what I'm getting at, is people have this tendency to attack each other. You know, I know the truth, and what you are saying is in conflict with my idea of the truth. So, let's fight. Let me attack you. Let me belittle you. Let me put a... Let me call what you're doing pseudoscience. Even though my very real science might very well be outdated in a month or two years or God forbid you look at your own God forbid if you're really into science and you know I think it comes across in this show that I like have this really low regard for atheists and scientism as I would you know as other people call it but I would call it that too I think that probably comes across on this show and I think some of it's overcompensating for the fact that there's so much self-righteousness in I don't want to say among scientists themselves, although I do feel that way too, but of the science fans. There's so much self-righteousness, and that's one of the best examples of... Something that isn't traditionally religious, but people become religious about it and they think I'm right. Even though it's built into the religion of science that it will continually outdate itself. There's still this tendency to hang on to what we know right now like we truly know it. It's another form of, you know, pretending that everything isn't just improvised. Oh, we found it, guys. We found the answer. You know, because science is one of the greatest acts of improvisation we have especially trying to explain that this is how reality works the audacity of that you know so in that way you know science is very much this game of improv experimentation because that's what improvisation is it's experimentation and what is science it is a system of ex- uh, of experimentation so the idea that you know anything at any given point is ridiculous and especially with time especially knowing how we've outdated previous Scientific beliefs, the idea that you can rest on any one thing or that it explains anything. And it gets back into the thing that I always harp on about explanation versus description. Be very mindful of when you are explaining versus when you are describing. And speaking of courtroom testimony, you know, in looking through that, it's very fascinating to me how when someone is being cross examined, the lawyer or prosecutor, they have to what they're doing is they're getting the witness to describe. And that's why the questions, each question should be answered with more or less a yes or no or simply one sentence. Whenever you see a witness start to explain, the judge stops it or somebody objects. It's interesting. And so that's an important part of the legal process is you get witnesses to describe rather than explain. And to go back to if you were a witness to an old lady getting mugged, You would be asked to describe what you saw, not explain it. I saw this man do this, and he went here, and he looked like this. But you wouldn't try to explain his motivation. You wouldn't even try to explain what the old lady was doing. You wouldn't try to explain anything. You would simply describe what you saw. And it's important for science to do that as well. Science should always describe, and it should never explain. You know, explanations are for, are for philosophy, maybe. You know, even then, I think philosophy can be more descriptive in nature than explanative, Explain, however, you say that, than then exploitative. Um, but, you know, science, it should be at its core a descriptive process. It is observational. And there's a tendency, though, to see science as an explanation. And that it's part of that reductionist mindset is that by looking at the smallest parts, we somehow come to a greater understanding, which I don't think is true. I don't think we see the greater function of something by looking at the smallest parts alone. I don't think we understand the truth, for that matter, by looking at the smallest components of truth. Facts, as we call them. We think of a fact as something very large, but a fact is something very small. A fact is something that really depends on your perspective, and what better illustration of that is the fact that so many different people have their own idea of what a fact is, and we're in this war over, oh, it's a fact. What I'm, st- what I'm telling you is a fact. You see, we're just really annoying conservatives like to say, facts, not feelings. We're talking about facts, not feelings. And it's like, sure, I, I hear a lot of feeling in your voice as you say that. <laughs> you know, it's like, it sure sounds like there's some feeling behind you even saying that. So you can see where everybody's constantly deriving facts from feelings, and for that matter, deriving feelings from facts. You can't really separate them, because that's what a perspective is. That's what your little perspective, you're looking at an object and part of that experience is what you are feeling. Because we think of feeling as emotion only. It's an emotional reaction. When, when a conservative says, facts, not feelings, what they're saying is like, you're a crybaby, and because you're a crybaby, you don't know what reality's like. You know, it's, it's that tendency, and it's like, well, what are you doing? It, it, that's where we get into this idea of you guys are cousins, you guys are both crybaby. You you guys are both crybaby cousins fighting in a war, and what's separating you is this tiny millimeter of a chasm that separates you. But you've turned it into something very deep. You're only separated by a millimeter. You are cousins. You know you are the same thing essentially, and you're separated by this tiny millimeter. You you see it as a circle. They see it as an oval. And you both see... You, you, your facts and your feelings on both sides are totally mixed up, and you don't even know anything. And this isn't me trying to say I know the truth either. But to get back to my conspiracy theory, you know, this, I, the only conspiracy theory... The only hill that I will die on in the world of conspiracy theory is the idea that we know what we're doing, or we knew what we were doing all along. Because we all, on an individual level, and on the, on a larger societal, governmental level, we are always trying to convince people that we know exactly what we're doing. And yet, deep down, we intuitively know that we don't. And it doesn't mean we can't get better at doing certain things. Just because you go into a new job and you have no idea how to do something, and it'll take you a couple months to get the hang of it, it doesn't mean you won't get better at it. It doesn't mean you won't get better... But you also have to understand that that's improv, too. And you think about improvisation, theatrical improvisation. If you do it enough, you'll get better at it. You know, some people might be naturally better, but you'll get better at it if you keep doing it. So it's not that you can't improve. And I think the same thing goes for trying to understand reality, trying to understand truth. It's first of all accepting that you are improvising, Accepting that you are reacting, that you are responding, that you do have a limited point of view, a limited perspective. Accepting that you could be wrong, but also knowing that you could be right. And I think if you come from that perspective, and you see truth as a much larger thing, you see truth as much more inclusive than it is exclusive. Not seeing it as a jewel that you have to dig for. And not seeing it as something that you have to comment on, otherwise it doesn't exist. Because that's the strangest thing to me of all, is the idea that if I don't... The truth is so important and big and universal, yet if my puny little vocal cords don't say it out loud, somehow it won't be known. That's pretty egotistical. That's pretty narcissistic. If the truth won't exist unless I say it out loud using these placeholder words during a certain time and place, using a certain language. Because, I mean, you can even see where people could spin their wheels on that, where, you know, I was talking a lot about walking yesterday. And another language in another country, they walk too. Did you know that? They walk too. But they have a different word for it. They have a completely different word for it. Does that mean it's not the same thing? Is walking not walking... Because they use a different word for it in Sweden. Of course not, and you can see it by the movement. You can see when someone is walking, and that doesn't mean that maybe in some countries they got a slightly different swagger. Maybe this country they saunter around a little bit more. It doesn't change the fact that they're walking. You know, there's everybody has style. Everybody has their own sense of style. Everybody has their own language, and that's all that language is. It's a style. Um, and all they're doing is describing something. People, everybody moves their legs in this way, so let's come up with a way to describe it. And, uh, but, uh, you know, with that, you can see where the words don't matter. It's not that they don't matter. I mean, we we all, I'm talking right now. It's not that I think language is just point, pointless, um, but it's, you can see where, when it comes to acknowledging the bigger picture of what walking is, it doesn't matter what you call it. And I think that's what I've realized with even bigger concepts like truth is that it doesn't actually matter what you call it. It doesn't matter how you acknowledge it. It's still going to be there. People are still going to walk no matter what you call it. The truth is still going to be there no matter how you try to frame it and, and whether or not you say anything or not too. And that should be comforting. That should be very comforting to know that the truth doesn't require you to constantly comment on it. You've heard of the T? There's a T. This is me throwing another bone to the English people. There's a T. That's what I'll do. You know, in the same way that, like, somebody who's trying to impress a black person will bring up hip-hop, not knowing whether that person even likes hip-hop. Like, oh, what are your favorite rappers? It's the same thing with English people and me, where I'm like, oh, have you heard of T? You know, we have T, too. Um, but There's a T called constant comment, and I've always gotten a kick out of that name. Constant comment. <laughs> constant comment. But it, it, there's this, we have this tendency to think that if we don't constantly comment on the truth, which starts with a T, maybe these things are related Is it a coincidence that the word T phonetically sounds like the first letter of truth? and There's a T called constant comment, and we continually feel the need to constantly comment on the truth. Otherwise, we feel like it'll disappear. And and it goes back to the idea, though, if you're in a situation, there are situations where somebody does need to be a whistleblower, where somebody does need to comment. Somebody does need to point at the, the the perps lined up. I'm not talking about weed your favorite weed, your purple weed, when you see the perps all lined up, you know, sometimes you do need to be the person who points your finger and says it was him. And so that's the sort of that's sort of the, the almost, you know, Bhagavad Gita dilemma of which side, you know, it's it's that deliberate action, the dilemma of deliberate action. It's when should I speak up? When should I comment on the truth? Well, clear way, clear the path for your intuition. Whatever that means, whether it means, you know, Sobering up, whether it means, uh, you know, reading the right material, whether it means whatever it means, ending, ending that relationship, starting another relationship, whatever helps you clear your path, clear the path for your intuition. I think that is very helpful and realizing that it's not necessarily your job to constantly remind everybody what you think the truth is. Because it will be there no matter what. And it will be waiting for you. If it needs you, trust me, if the truth really needs you, it will be waiting for you. The door will be open. I know that. The truth told me. Because I made a cup of constant comment tea, and the truth said, Hey, you know, you thought you were throwing English people a bone, but it turns out you're throwing me a bone. You're throwing me, the truth, a bone, and I'm going to tell you this, and that's that I'll be there waiting for you no matter what. And we could get into the idea of God here, and God as truth, God as, as the, the largest possible component that we can comprehend, in the same way that truth is one of the largest too. And truth can include everything that something like God includes as well. It's sort of like Ram Dass said, you know, what isn't God? Well, what isn't truth? And this does get into this annoying philosophical territory, um, but I do feel it's true. (laughs) I feel, I fact, I fact it's true. But this this is how I feel. And it's how I feel about the truth, is that the truth is large enough to include most everything that we can comprehend, including lies. And the very fact that you can identify a lie, the very fact that you can identify somebody who is just clearly lying, that alone tells you that the truth is working. That alone tells you that the truth is working its magic, whether you're doing anything or not. It does tell you that the truth will reveal what needs to be known. But you have to recognize that it is that big. You have to recognize that the truth is that universal and you have to recognize that it doesn't need you. But that doesn't mean you can't participate in it. It doesn't mean that you can't participate in the truth. This land is mine